And about halfway through, we came across a couple of Chinese fishing vessels. And these are a couple hundred foot boats. One of them motored right towards us and then swung right around and followed up in our wake and was maybe 25, 30 yards off our stern with a hundred shirtless, not very happy looking guys on the boat. Welcome in to Like a Man. I'm your host, Miles Nielsen. On today's show, Joe Somweber comes on and tells us how he took his family on an adventure sailing across the Caribbean and the Pacific Ocean, landing in New Zealand. Let's give it a listen. Where did you start from? We started from a little island in the, in the Caribbean called St. Martin, which is kind of in the very north eastern side of the Caribbean of what's called the Leeward Island chain. It's an interesting little place. It's half French and half Dutch. And that's where we, we boarded our vessel and we shipped a pallet of our stuff down there. And that's, that's where we got going. So you started from there. My first question is, you grew up in Chicago. You live yep. in Arkansas. Correct. How did you learn how to sell? <laughs> you know, as a, as a kid, I went sailing with a their Boy Scout troop when I was like 12 or 13 on these little boats up in Lake Superior and loved the experience, thought it was really cool. And then every chance I got, I would get on a little, you know, Hobie cat or a small little you know, sunfish you know, day sail boat. And I just, I thought it was a blast. And we had some family friends that lived out of Boston and had a nice, just a beautiful old wood masted tall ship schooner is maybe 55 60 feet long and they needed some help crewing for the summer and so when i was 18 i went out there for a, for a month or so and, and helped them on their boat and and that is where the idea first hit me it's like it, it's where i first heard that there were people that sailed around the world on boats and for whatever reason that planted this little seed in me that that's something that i wanted to do someday and it, it kind of stuck with me ever since. So to be honest with you, I never thought I'd get the chance, especially after you know getting married and starting to have kids. It just seemed like those, those years and that opportunity had passed me by. But we had a pretty unique set of life circumstances come up that made the dream possible. COVID being one of them and everything shutting down, right? COVID absolutely being one of them. Yes. You know, a, a kind of a, prof a professional breaking point where you know, we'd, we'd moved on from a business that, that we were in. And, um, and so I, you know, didn't have any place I had to be. <laughs> and, you know, our fear of homeschooling the children was, was kind of overcome by having to homeschool them. And all of a sudden we just felt like this untethered feeling of, boy, we could, we could live life anywhere. What if we did it on the ocean? When was the moment you pulled the trigger? There was no going back. When was that moment? And what was your wife's reaction? It was about six months before we left, you know, and, and I should caveat this by saying, Mary has always known this is a dream of mine. And she has always said, there is no way I'm ever going to get on a boat. And you know, she grew up in Denver, so didn't have a lot of experience at the ocean either. But, you know, I, I, we'd sold this business and um, I went through probably six months of depression, just really struggling with what my purpose was and what I was supposed to wake up and do every day. And uh, I'd asked her and I said, hey, you know, what, 
what if I just started doing the research on what a sailing route might look like and what kind of boat we might do? And I think out of sheer pity, she agreed to, to let me do that. And so in the process of doing that, we started watching some YouTube families that, that sail. And um, I said, boy, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we just went down and, and got a captain certification, you know, a bareboat ticket certification and no, oh, it just happens to be in the British Virgin Islands. That sounds like a fun vacation. So we went and did that. And that was great preparation. But we had followed this one family called Sailing Zatara. You can look them up on YouTube. They're super famous. They've been doing it now for probably seven, eight years. And they have a bunch of kids and you know, they sail and have these experiences. And I had sent him a, um, a, an email asking some questions about boats. And Mary and I that night were, you know, huddled around a laptop while the kids were watching a movie in the basement, looking at boats and thinking, you know, maybe this is something we would consider. And my phone rings and it's a FaceTime from Keith, the, you know, the father of this, this family, Sailing Zatara, and he's in New Zealand. And I was like, hey, I heard you had some questions about boats. Let's talk through it. So we ended up spending like 45 minutes on the phone with these, these YouTube stars. <laughs> we're a little starstruck. But asking him about life and raising kids on the boat and you know what it was it like and anyways after that moment like we hung up the phone we were just it just felt like a door opened and it felt like it was the, the right thing to do and we kind of looked at each other and I wasn't going to say it because it's important that Mary said it but she's like we're going to do this I'm like yeah we're going to do this so the kids finished their movie and they came upstairs and it was like 10:30 at night and we told them we're going to go sailing. <laughs> And, and that was the moment where we, where we couldn't turn back because we committed to the kids to do it. And then, you know, we had to figure all out the logistics from there. I've been there telling the kids something before and it is impossible to back out. So I know what you mean when you say that. Definitely. <laughs> That's right. That's awesome. So after you did this, where did you get your boat and what kind of boat were you using? Yeah, we're on a Privilege 65, which is a 65-foot catamaran. It is a big boat. It's probably the biggest um, family sailing boat that was uncrewed that we came across while we were sailing. Um, and she was a lot of work for that reason. She's an old boat and, and a big boat. But, um, yeah, uh, we found her in – she was in Grenada. It was really challenging at the time because of COVID. We're all in lockdown, so you couldn't get to places to see things. So the boat was in Grenada. Grenada was closed. So I flew down to the St. Vincent and the Grenadines and had to quarantine for 10 days in like this tiny little hotel that was mosquito ridden before the boat came up to meet me there. And then we sailed around for two days and before we decided to buy it. And anyways, it was, it was a whole thing trying to figure out what boat we were going to get. And I think in a lot of ways, we ended up with the boat we did because it was the only one we could, we could get on and look at, but it ended up being a good decision. And you know, the rest is kind of history from there. We, we boarded the boat in December of 2020 and then, you know, spent the next almost two and a half years on board. That is sweet. So what is the craziest thing that happened to you that was like, holy cow, this is nuts? Man, there are so many stories, everything from like spearfishing with sharks coming at us to storms and massive mechanical failures, hundreds of miles offshore. Uh, I mean, pick your poison. What do you want to hear about? Did you ever run into a tiger shark? No, we never did actually, which, which was a surprise to us because they're fairly common throughout the South Pacific. But for the most part, you know, we saw lemons and reef sharks 
and you know some gray tip oceanics and things like that too but what about a uh, whale we, shark we did see a whale shark yep and some friends of ours actually had a really close encounter with the whale shark like swim right up under their dinghy which is pretty awesome those things are just massive um we were in these little atolls in the in french polynesia so an atoll is like a, a ring of sand it's the edge of a volcano that's kind of been filled in right and, and so you'll have this lagoon in the middle that's surrounded by this ring of sand and, and a pass that allows your, your boat to go in. So we'd, we'd go through the pass and anchor. And what was nice about it is it was sheltered from the, the wind and the waves and they're inside of there. And there was some pretty cool fishing and spearfishing in there too. And so we'd get the dinghies out and put on our weight belts and, and go spearfishing with just, you know, snorkel gear basically. But in one of these atolls, there's just a lot of sharks and they were keyed in on the click of the spear gun. So as soon as you fired your spear gun, you'd have a couple of sharks swimming at you. You know, they don't want you. They just want whatever's on the other end of your spear. But yeah, we'd been at it for long enough one day that we had a couple of sharks getting really quite friendly. And we had one big one in particular, an eight footer that was kind of circling us. And we saw one more grouper that we wanted to go get. And so our strategy was to, you know, have one guy in the water, which was me, of course. And then we'd go look for the fish we wanted to spear. And then we'd wave over the dinghy and the dinghy would come over, you know, kind of right on top of us. And we went down, speared this fish, and then you'd swim to the surface as fast as you could, hand the spear gun off to whoever's in the boat, and then launch yourself into the dinghy before the sharks were on you. And the guy who's in the dinghy would would start reeling in your fish, and oftentimes they were fighting off the shark on the other end of the the spear to try and get the fish in the boat. It was a little sporty at times, but it was fun. What was your diet like? Would you... Was it a ton of fish and seafood or did you, how did you guys get food on the ocean? Yeah, kind of wherever you can. Um, anytime you're in a decent sized port, you stock up, but your diet changes a lot um, depending on where you are and what's available and what's in season. You know, if mangoes are in season, you get a lot of mangoes, which is great, but a lot of times they're not. You know, some of these islands are so remote and desolate that they only get a supply ship once a month. And so as a cruiser, someone coming in, you got to be pretty careful that you don't grab all of their food <laughs> from the store and empty out their shelves. You got you to be a good guest and, and be cautious about how much you take. So like when we were in Panama, we were provisioning for about three and a half months. We're trying to provision until we would get to Tahiti. And so we supplemented that with fish and fresh produce that we could get from you know, islanders that lived on these islands. But you know, our, our core things, staples, you know, flour, uh, ramen noodles and you know, canned goods and things like that came all the way from Panama. Going back to crazy experiences, did you ever have any encounters, scary encounters with other people trying to like ram your boat or anything like that? <laughs> no, we had, we had some interesting encounters, but we never had, I don't think we ever had anyone that was trying to board us. We had an interesting encounter with some Chinese fishing vessels as we were crossing the, the Pacific uh, you know, from Galapagos to, to uh, the Marquesas is the longest haul. That's 3,000 nautical miles. And about halfway through, we came across a couple of Chinese fishing vessels. And these are, you know, a couple hundred foot boats. And um, one of them motored right towards us and then swung right around and followed up in our wake and was maybe 25, 30 yards off our stern with a hundred shirtless, not very happy looking guys on the boat, you know, <laughs> I'm back in the, 
in the cockpit of our boat with my five kids, like waving high because we haven't seen anyone in nine days. <laughs> and there were no smiles, no waves, just just angry faces. And it, it was interesting. We weren't sure what was about to happen, but they eventually turned off and adjusted their course and, and left us alone. I'm not quite sure what that maneuver was, but it was it was an interesting moment for sure. It was your spear gun you got out and was holding up. That's what it was. Yeah. Um. So while you were explaining that story, something that came to my mind was when I was living in Japan, I had a similar experience. The first city that I lived in in Japan was called Otaru, and it's on the North Island. And me and the guy that I was working with, we'd go down to the dock every day, the port, I guess, the Otaru port, and we would throw rocks at jellyfish because there's a ton of jellyfish there and we just get these little pebbles and throw them at them. And one day we were watching this boat and it was all these guys loading these used tires into the boat. And I was looking at the flag on the boat and I was like, where have I seen that flag before? What flag is it? That's not the South Korean flag. That's not the Taiwanese flag. It's not the Chinese flag. And I was like going through my mind and then all of a sudden it dawned on me. And I was like, that's the North Korean flag. And I was like, holy crap. And like they were looking at us. But the funny thing is we were wearing white shirts and ties. And so I think they were more nervous that these two guys in white <laughs> shirts and ties were like watching them every move that they were doing than looking quite official. Yes. Then I think they were more afraid of that than we were of them. But that those those you're on international waters at that point right they could have done anything couldn't they yeah it, international waters no one really ran supreme out there so it can get a little get a little sketchy yeah you're i mean you're at that point you're you're a thousand miles away from land in any direction and so um you know, there's really no good way to communicate you've got a radio which we tried to use to hail them they never responded um but that radio maybe only goes you know 10 miles if you're lucky um, and then you've got a satellite phone, which works sometimes, but yeah, you're pretty isolated out there. So when, when things do go wrong, you're kind of on your own. And we did have some scary moments, not on that sale, thankfully, because that was our longest sale, but in others, we, we certainly did. Like with people? No, uh, weather and mechanical failures. Uh, our probably our worst sale of all time was from one of the Southern Bahamas called Great Inagua, crossing the Caribbean from North to South, our end destination was Cartagena, Colombia. And it was just the worst. <laughs> we were waiting for good weather windows and none came. Um, and so we had to, we had to leave when we didn't want to, which is never a good sign. Hurricane season was coming up. And so you're starting to get rougher weather conditions. We sailed probably for those seven days, we sailed in you know, 35 knot conditions on our beam, which is 45 mile an hour winds steady. And we had 15 to 20 foot waves all the time, crashing over the boat, seaweed on the top of the boat kind of a thing. Everyone's sick as a dog and tired because you can't sleep when you're off shift. You know, Someone has to be on watch 24 seven, which in those kinds of conditions is really just my wife and I are the only two that were kind of trusted to, to take watch. So you're just exhausted and you're not making decisions very well and constantly praying that the wind and the waves will abate and they don't. But in that environment, we had several mechanical failures when we were right in between 
the Cuba and Haiti, we had a, a power outage at about one in the morning where we lost all power on the boat, which means we have no navigation, we have no lights, we have no autopilot, and we just gotten all of our systems done. It, it, it was about four hours that my wife and I spent taking turns manually steering the boat by the compass and a, and a headlamp while the other crawled around trying to figure out what was going on. We, we did eventually find a solution, a temporary fix that allowed us to restore power, but that was scary. And then a couple of days later, we, um, we were down turning on a generator to recharge our batteries. And, and um, as soon as we turned the generator on, power went to our water heater for the first time. And because of the rough conditions, the, there was a short in the wiring and the water heater just threw giant sparks and near exploded. And, and we had a fire in our engine room 400 miles offshore, which is terrifying. And that's one of the, the fastest ways boats go down is, is fires. So we had to, and we went through like four fire extinguishers trying to get that thing out, which we eventually did. Uh, yeah, we flooded an engine room at the very end of that sail, actually, in the, like the seventh day as we're, we can see Cartagena in the distance, you know, 11 o'clock at night. The engine starts making funny noises and we pop the engine hatch, go down below and turn on a light. And we've got two and a half feet of standing water in the engine room. Roughly, you know, 300 gallons, 400 gallons of water, and uh, I had to quickly fix that, patch that where that hose had come loose, and, and then spent the next two and a half hours bailing water out of the engine room with a with a hand pump and five gallon buckets. <laughs> At that point, we hadn't slept in, in six days, and we're just absolutely exhausted and ready to flip a table and and go home. Thankfully, we didn't, but it was a it was a rough rough sail. That sounds rough. I think the Chinese would have been. Like a little scarier though. You know what I mean? Going up behind <laughs> you. Um, what was the most beautiful place? Like the time when you were just like, this is awesome. Like this is heaven. I love this. What place was that for you? And then let's go to that point. Boy, there were, there are a couple of standouts. French Polynesia is amazing. It's huge, right? There's hundreds, if not thousands of islands in French Polynesia. But they come in, in, there's three island chains there. There's the Marquesas, which are the first ones you come to when you're making that big crossing across the Pacific. And the Marquesas are unbelievable because they're mountainous and they're rugged and jagged and just look like, you know, straight out of a National Geographic film. And they're sparsely populated. There's hardly anyone there. And the people that do live there live much the way they have for the last, you know, couple of thousand years. And they, you know, eat everything off of, the lush perennial food forests essentially that surround their homes and, you know, hunt wild goat and uh, fish out of the sea and, you know, work a few hours a day to put food on the table. And then they spend the rest of their time with family and singing songs and playing the ukulele. And like, it's just, it's, it is an unbelievable lifestyle there. That's largely untouched by the world. Very little cell phone coverage. You know, you don't see people on phones anywhere. And that to me was a place where, I felt most at peace and kind of one with the island lifestyle and we just loved it. But the second uh, island chain of French Polynesia is the Tuamotu Islands and they're totally different from the Marquesas. They're these atolls, they're, you know, scrubby and desert and sand and palm trees and they're picturesque and beautiful. And you, again, they're super remote, but we were with, you know, four or five other kid boats, boats with families and kids through most of the Tuamotus. And so 
you know, we'd pull into these atolls and we five, six boats would raft up or anchor right next to each other. And it was a full on party for the four five, six days that we'd be in that island. And the kids would all be on the beach making huge bonfires and having 24 hour challenges where they'd try and stay on shore without any adults for 24 hours. We'd be fishing and spear fishing and kiteboarding and uh, just having a party. And uh, that was really fun to feel like we had these beautiful islands in the middle of nowhere all to ourselves, totally unspoiled. Did you do that quite a bit, like sail with other families? We tried to as much as possible. You know, one of the things we learned was important to us as a family was community. We needed community. We needed friends for our own personal sanity. And so we tried to find those boats that we aligned with. And, you know, it's not hard. Now, there's not many of them, but, you know, you think if you have kids and you've decided to take a couple of years off to prioritize family and to go adventuring on a sailboat, like they're probably pretty cool people. And they were. And so we had, we had a lot of fun with pretty much everyone we met out there. That's sweet. That is so cool. So you ended your trip in New Zealand. Yep. Sea legs. What was that like adjusting back to <laughs> land? Um, I mean, the proverbial sea legs, we spent a lot of time on land hiking around and doing things all along. And so the actual like adjusting to your balance and equilibrium on land doesn't take long for us. But the emotional side of that being done and adjusting coming back home was, was obviously a lot more of an adjustment. Now, when you eat mangoes, you spit them out because they're so old <laughs> and disgusting and same with the seafood. Some of them, some of them are pretty good, but yeah, the, I don't know, to be honest with you, food is, there's more food at home that we enjoy than we did out in the ocean. You could get a whole tree of bananas and we'd hang them from our bimini and that was pretty awesome. And when you could get the mangoes, it was great. And the, yes, the fish was awesome, but you know, seven days of mahi and you're kind of ready for something else. The variety of things you can get out there is pretty limited. And so, you know, to come home and have all the things you're accustomed to is, well, I've, I've gained some weight since we got home, I'll put it that way. When you're eating mahi all day, you kind of miss the big, fat, juicy T-bone steak or whatever, right? right? All you really want is some five guys. Yeah. Five. Oh yeah. Five guys. There you go. <laughs> Well, we're going to wrap it up. What is the major life lesson that you learned or how did this change your life going through this adventure? Yeah, um, a couple things. As a family, I would say the, the gift that we got was to know what good looks like. We know what it feels like to spend a lot of time together, to feel very, very close to each other, to know the intimate details of what's going on in each other's lives and to see each other three-dimensionally, right? Like we talked about that some with our kids. You know, they saw my wife and I at probably the hardest moments we've ever had in our lives. And they were there for it. And they saw it, you know, had a front row seat to it. And vice versa. You know, we saw our kids in some very difficult and trying situations. And we saw each other at, at our best. And to have those experiences was really good. And I think made a great foundation. As we come home and we re-engage in life here, it gets busy again. We're spread thin. We're all going a million miles a minute and in different directions a lot of the time. And that gift of knowing what good looks like and feels like keeps paying off because when we get out of balance, we know we're out of balance and we say, hey, you know, we, we need to take some time. We need to take the weekend off, a few days off. Like We're just going to be together and we're going to get reconnected. And so that's been a huge life lesson for us. 
as far as what I hope my kids take away from it, I hope that they can see that there's a lot of different ways to live a happy and fulfilled life. We met a lot of people living in a lot of different situations and some of them very poor, some of them very um, isolated, some of them very wealthy and, and everything in between. And we found a common thread of good people living happy lives everywhere we went. If you look for it, you could find it. And I think sometimes, you know, we all get a little limited. We get the blinders on where we live and how we live and think that that's what happiness and that's what it looks like. Um, but I hope they see that there's a lot of ways to live this life in a, in a fulfilling way and that they get a little adventurous with it. That's awesome. I love it. And that's a great lesson too. And it just kind of puts things into perspective and what a huge blessing to just be with your family for that long. Yeah, that was it. Could you go into details about the specifics of what you and your wife would fight about? No, (laughs) (laughs) that was, that was bad how to navigate through that one, through that storm. Um, No, I will say though, like, you know, for what it's worth, my wife and I learned how to work together on the boat. Like we'd never really had to do that to that degree. You know, like most couples, you live separate lives a lot of the time. You know, your, your, your overlap is 10, 20% on life. And for those two and a half years, our overlap was 100%. You know, we both sailed the boat, and both taught the kids school and both provisioned and, you know, had fun together, played together. But like we were a team and, and had to be to get that, you know, to, to keep our family out of trouble for those two and a half years. And it's changed the way we, we work together, finally learned how to do it right, I think. Um, did you guys document this like on social media or anything? We, yeah, we have a Instagram channel, um, at sailing Lola Lita where, I mean, we didn't do an amazing job, but we, we tried to capture, you know, a lot of what the experience was. Well, Joe, thanks so much for joining. This has been awesome to listen and thank you so much. Yeah, Miles, anytime. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, man. And that's a wrap. Thanks everybody for listening.